Hello, and welcome back to another 80s All Over patron episode. I am Scott Weinberg, your co-host, and as always, I am joined by my friend and co-host, the wonderful Drew McWeeny. Hello, Drew. I'm really excited about this week. I just want to say, before we ever started doing this, I dipped my toe into the world of podcasting, and then you, Drew, you said you have to check out this gentleman's podcast. I went through the entire series in a matter of two months. I'm telling you, he is a real inspiration. When I listen to him, I think this is a good way to do things. He is a crown prince, in my opinion, of podcasting. <laughs> Let us welcome Mr. Matt Gorley. <laughs> Hi, that's the nicest intro I think I've ever gotten. Royalty, huh? There you go. Those shows, beyond I was there too, you've done a award-winning podcasts on James Bond. You did Super Ego. You now have a show called In Voorhees We Trust with Gourley and Rust. And of course, that's about the Friday the 13th series. So we could talk just for an hour about podcasts, but let me shut up and let you guys talk. <laughs> one of the things that I like, Matt, is that, and I think it's one of the things we're trying to do with this show, is there's a sense that there's some movie archaeology going on with the stuff you do, where you're interested in corners that haven't been endlessly discussed that you find fascinating. And both Bond and Friday, I think, are well-discussed subjects, but... Uh, it sounds like it's enthusiasm first and then a genuine breadth of knowledge. And I think those things are both important when you're going to do this for any period of time. Yeah, we have a slogan on James Bonding that we're lovers, not experts, though we probably know quite a bit about the films. We get things wrong and we're not so into the getting everything 100% right. Like I would really appreciate in journalism. I don't hold that same standard for for movie like enthusiasm, you know, it'd be one thing if we were critics in the truest sense of the word, but we just really like it. And I would love to say that it was some like um, goal of mine to set out to do this type of movie exploration, but it really was something just personal. I would approach these movies from how they affected me personally and what stuck out to me as a kid and attack it from those angles. And it turns out that somehow resonated with people I really didn't know that would happen or expect it and you know like getting into things like how fascinated I am with squibs or quicksand and it turns out that's like a whole subculture really it's a dark underbelly or like the dim underbelly of the movie world it's so much of what I think is funny about superego I love that you are fascinated by the weirdest corners of behavior and uh, your H.R. Geiger, for example, the, the way you portray him as a character, the way the show uses him is beautiful. But talk about a joke that's for like nine people. And I totally <laughs> love that you guys will make the joke that you think is funny and assume that your audience will catch up or go with you or maybe not. It's yeah, just it's funny to you. So. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. That's, I think, the only way we know how to do it is to make ourselves laugh. And it's, we're just lucky that some people want to come along for that ride because we didn't expect it. Um, well, you know, one of the things that when you talk about the James Bonds that you're fond of, um, my theory is that it's the James Bond you see first is the bond you imprint on. That's your yeah. bond basically for life. Yeah, boy, using the word imprinting, I don't think we've tried to describe this for years and years and you did it in one word. You really do. You imprint on the bond era that becomes your parent when you are looking for a bond parent. Because yeah. my dad introduced me to bond. It was one of the things that we shared. And he took me to my first one in the theater was Spy Who Loved Me. And whether or not Spy Who Loved Me is my favorite Bond film, 
it is the most Bond film in my mind. That is what I <laughs> yeah. think of as Bond now with all the touchstones and all the signifiers. And I like hold that as the thing that I compare them to as to how Bondy is it now? It's <laughs> Matt beyond just the eighties. I would love to know off the top of your head. And I know this answer could change tomorrow. What are your three favorite Bond films? Casino Royale. A View to a Kill, which would shock many people, I think, but it's that we'll same get, thing. Ooh, we're going to get to that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm excited about that because actually you teased me on that and I don't know much about that, so I'm very excited. Um, and then I might say uh, maybe Honor Majesty's Secret Service, ooh, but there's nice a, call. a few others out there. I think that's the best movie, even if it doesn't have the best bond. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like to be overtly negative on the show, but since we we got to ask, what would you say are the one or two weakest well for me for some reason my least favorite is tomorrow never dies just i find it to be so middle of the road bond to me that's the biggest sin a bond movie can make it can either be great or horrible and i love aspects of both but when it is just the same boring formula and nothing inspired it yeah it leaves me cold if it's gonna be bad it needs to be spectacularly bad exactly that's why i love view to a kill I always, I often would tell people, and again, this is just from a casual fan. I thought Pierce Brosnan might have been the best Bond who got the worst scripts. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. I'm a little harsh on him sometimes, but it's really not him. I think it's his movies because he seems like a wonderful person. And people always throw out Die Another Day as the worst Bond film. And I think, no, I'll sit down and watch that movie. It's bonkers and horrible, but at least it's entertaining. Like, at least it shoots for something. At least it has an invisible car and Halle Berry getting a spinoff. And you could tell that they had ambition and they were wrong. And every choice they make is bad in Die Another Day, but they were making choices like crazy. Yes. And that being said, I understand that there are people out there that are a little younger than me that imprinted on the Brosnan era. And to that, I say, God bless you, because the thing with Bond is there's something for everyone and nobody shares the exact same Bond preferences as anybody else. And that's like the beauty of it. I think it's what keeps it alive, too. It's the reason that it continues is my kids can watch you know skyfall and it feels like a new modern film and it feels like that's bond for them and they don't ever have to go back and watch the other ones if they don't want but i think that if you check out two zeppelin albums and you like them you're going to devour the rest if you see two or three bond films and you like them you're going to dig all the way back to dr no and yeah and the beauty of that is that if you did that with zeppelin you're going to get more zeppelin but this would be like loving zeppelin and then suddenly you get abba but it has the name led zeppelin and you're like what is going on here this could be a good entry point into the 80s era. Uh, I think Drew and I would agree that like Moonraker tried to jump on the wow, Star Wars is hot. So let's everybody's doing some sci fi adventure. So let's, you know, get Bond into space. And it's, I guess, infamous for being one of the silliest Bond films. So as a precursor to diving into the 80s, what's your take generally looking back on Moonraker? I enjoy it. And I actually think kind of like Die Another Day were like two bloated films of two different Bonds eras, they they both start off pretty strong and pretty somewhat subtle. Well, I shouldn't say that with Moonraker, like they do this whole skydive thing, but at least it's fun. It's really in the end when things go crazy, but that's usually the Bond problem. But I like Moonraker. It has a beautiful score. It's Ken Adams' last film. He was the um, production designer and art director, and there's some like beautiful scenery in there. And it's really just a retread of not only You Only Live Twice, but The Spy Who Loved Me. It's just three films that start with some vessel being stolen by the villain and recovered. It's really strange. Matt, when I toured Pinewood, 
I was with somebody who knew a million and five Pinewood stories, and they told me an amazing Ken Adams story from Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, yeah. I think I know this. This is the Stanley Kubrick one. That is. So you know that one. Go ahead. It's amazing. Yeah. So Drax's submarine hangar, the soundstage was too big. They'd never lit something that large before, and they were just stymied. And it was Ken Adam who finally said, let me just invite Stanley over. And so Kubrick came after they finished for the day, just said, put the lights there, 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 and there. And they did it, and it worked perfectly. That blows my mind. I love that. I know. It's so incredible. <laughs> and it was because uh, Kubrick's office is like 50 feet from where the 007 stage is. So his building that is now named after him is right there. So the other one that I baited you with a little bit that I don't think you you said you knew was the backstory on Christopher Walken in View to a Kill and his hair. No, I've never heard this. So when he was approached for this, they had written the part for David Bowie and Bowie had turned it down. And then they started circling Walken. And Walken at that point was a very serious actor. He didn't want to do these kinds of movies. And he turned it down like eight times. And they kept coming back to him. And his agents kept saying, look, stupid. It's a James Bond villain. Take it. Take the money. Do the job. And then you get to be Christopher Walken for 10 years. And he just couldn't figure out how to do it. And they finally said, "Figure out, there's got to be a hook. There has to be something to make it interesting to you. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't even matter if it's in the script. Just make it interesting. The choice he made was that his character decided he was going to take the world over with his hair. And in every scene in the movie, what he is thinking as he acts is, do you like my hair? Is my hair intimidating? Do you see my hair? Does my hair threaten you? And he said this was the monologue that he's got going in his head for the entire movie. I went back and watched the movie afterwards. It's the greatest comedy of all time if you watch it with that subtext playing. I cannot wait. He acts with his forehead. The whole movie is him leaning into people and trying to dominate them with his hair. It's phenomenal. God, that's so great because... He's so good in that movie, too. And if that's the key to a good performance, all of acting training and all of that is just useless because you might as well pick something random. And I think that's that's one of the lessons of Christopher Walken is between the I just take all my dialogue and take the punctuation out. And that's how I learn my lines. And I act with these motivations. He's he's incredible. He's really not like any other actor I know. You can't talk about Bond in the 80s, of course, without covering Roger Moore. As a, a Bond expert, what would you say are the pros and the cons of your uh, a typical Roger Moore, James Bond performance? He can't run. He, yeah, he can't run and he can't particularly kiss. His kiss is is more like an incubus, like he's sucking the life out of these women. It's so delicate and pursed and his cheeks kind of winnow in. And I don't know, it's just harrowing to me. That being said, he's one of my favorite Bonds. I just want to get those things out of the way. And I think he made the right choice in contrasting Connery by being a little lighter and it really suited his style and for what those movies are I really think he's the best at that even if you take Brosnan who I think wanted it both ways he wanted to be seen as Connery and more and sometimes within the same scene and it just totally doesn't work for me Roger Moore really takes every movie on a fun campy adventure then I will say those two or three times he ever really gets really serious, it actually works for me because it's got real bite because you don't expect it when he kicks the car over and for your eyes only or in A View to a Kill when Christopher Walken shoots this like city clerk 
Bond just looks at him and calls him a psychopath, and it's very serious, and, and I really like it. Roger Moore has an amazing voice. His speaking voice is warm and authoritative. It can be threatening. It can be, you know, light. And I, I would love to hear some audiobooks by Roger Moore. What would you say of the 80s uh, Roger Moore? Uh, that's For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and View to a Kill. Which of those three do you think, like, showcases his best heroics? Well, most people would say For Your Eyes Only because it's kind of really stripped down and the most grounded of all his films, probably. But for that reason, I find it slightly boring because with Roger Moore, I want just a little bit of heightened reality. And it I also think- in the third act really depends on the physical side. And yeah, there's a couple of scenes where he looks a little frail. Octopussy, I would say. It's kind of an interesting, complicated mystery. And it's strange. And I don't know. I just find all, almost every one of Roger Moore's movies does its own thing in a way that the others don't. And it's kind of like you never know what you're going to get. It's a grab bag. But 83 was a weird year to be a Bond fan, though, man. Like that whole the whole back and forth between the two. And I'll say this, watching them in context, you kind of every film feels a little fresh. You're coming to it again. You Even stuff that I thought I had an opinion on, I'm sort of having a new experience with. And my takeaway from Never Say Never Again this time, I think both of us were struck by this, is Fatima Blush is one of the best villain performances. She's so good. In the entire series. She has so much fun and is so clearly in tune with what they're trying to do and what a Bond villain is classically. She's freaking amazing in that movie. Yeah, and I feel that way about Klaus Maria Brandauer as well as Largo. I think he's he's got like a walkin'-esque performance where you don't know where his sentences are going to begin or end. I also kind of like the James Bond is an old man stuff at the beginning because it's the thing that the Eon films have never leaned into once, which is the aging. Yeah, Skyfall they do a little bit, but you're right. In fact, if anything, they're always trying to hide it, which is also interesting because when Roger Moore comes in for the first time in Live and Let Die... He looks great, but he's also three years older than Sean Connery. There's nothing crazier than later in the series when he walks in and M and Q are like, you know, I'm 74 and you're 50. And I don't know how that happened, James. It's freaking me out. I know he's 57 in view to a kill, (laughs) but I love it. I love it. So it makes sense that you would be a fan of both the Bond films and the Friday films, because I think in both cases, each time somebody makes a movie in the series, You'll learn a lot about the people that are coming to the table to make that film because it's how they bounce off of this icon. Friday was a really organic thing to watch happen. What was your experience? When did you see them? Did you see them theatrically? Did you see them all on video? And when did you fall in love? What was the hook for you? Halloween, I should say, is really my franchise. So when Paul Rust and I got together to do this podcast, it was because he was just going off on Twitter about Friday the 13th. And I really do like them. And I'm a fan. But that's how we decided. And so we're going to do a Halloween series this year to cover those films as well. But for me, I was really actually emotionally scarred by Halloween as a kid. I had to see it at a young age with the lights off and stuff. And so it led me down this morbid fascination rabbit hole of all these other films. So, of course, Friday the 13th was, I think, the next step. And I saw some of it on cable TV. And I think part eight was the first one I saw in the theater. But by then, I know, I know. But but then guess what? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I imprinted on it. And for whatever reason, now that one holds some special feeling for me. But, it just proves our theory because yeah, exactly. arguably it's one of the worst of the entire oh, franchises. Certainly, certainly. But 
it doesn't matter if that was your entry point. You have an affection for it, well, especially <laughs> because seeing it in the theater for the first time and seeing Jason on the big screen. Jason is, I think, one of the great designs in movie monster history. You don't even need to see the movie. You see Jason and you get it, which is funny because they didn't even arrive to that look until the third movie anyway i know the development of, i'm i'm a big fan of baghead me too. backwoods hillbilly jason but i i get why the icon is the icon what what's your take on the series as a whole um i always had a fondness part four was the other one i kind of imprinted on because that's where everything really coalesced for me it had like a kid who was interested in movie props and it kind of like really got the formula for the first time that was the one that for better or for worse really nails the formula same thing with bond i think like goldfinger's the first one that really takes everything they've learned about what this franchise is and then they lean into it and so like I said, for some reason, I like eight. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> six is fun. Um, I The first two are good. Two is probably the best one, I mean, as a film. Two is my favorite. Drew, is two your favorite? Two is the one that scared me the most the first time I saw it. I think four and six together are maybe the most Friday the 13th of them. What I love about six is that it, they were willing to go intentionally with some humor. You know, it's not campy. It's a little self-referential, but it, there are some clever, funny jokes. I in think the shot six. of Jason standing on top of the bus in six where it's smoking and he's on that. That might be the greatest hero shot of him in the entire <laughs> franchise. Yeah. And that's also the film where he comes in with a James Bond gun barrel sequence yeah. and slashes the camera. <laughs> Yeah. Look, it's not many series that I think are elastic enough that you could try to get 13 out of them or 22 out of them or however many. And it does take something that you can bend 15 different ways. I think part of the joy of Jason X and Jason X is ridiculous, but Jason X makes me cackle. And it is precisely because they went, you know what? Okay, he's going to go to space now. And how? Like this. And every every insane choice they could make to put Jason in space, they do. And then they have fun with it. Frozen nitrogen heads getting smashed and the holodeck where he sees the, the teenagers having promiscuous sex. That stuff makes me really laugh as a longtime fan. Let's go back real quick to the Bond stuff. Do you remember having any kind of reaction when it, it switched over from Roger Moore to Timothy Dalton? Well, yeah, I do. I remember it very clearly because also that, I was always into Bond and my dad and I would watch him, but the summer before that or as that movie was shooting was the first time I really got into it. Like I call it my first wave Bond thing because I was reading some of the books and really anticipating the movie. And I was also probably 14. So I, I was still young enough that I didn't really question whether something was necessarily good or not. I just was like happy to have it. And so I still look back on Living Daylights pretty fondly. I think I've reevaluated it as an adult as best as I can, and I still like it. I didn't even question it, to be honest. I just went along with it. It was when Brosnan, when they switched to Brosnan, that I kind of went, oh, maybe this isn't really for, made for my type of enjoyment anymore. That was one of the longer gaps between Bonds, because when Dalton, when they got rid of Dalton, it wasn't like is he coming back? There was pretty much a firm feeling after License to Kill. That's it, right? We're done. Well, they started developing a third movie, actually. They did. And it just then got mired in legal things. But there's been some evidence recently that has come out to say that the whole legal tangle was really more Cubby Broccoli going to him saying, hey, we're going to move on. But why don't you say 
you're done just to help him save face. By all accounts, Cubby Broccoli was kind of a gentleman, so who knows? What's weird is I think Timothy Dalton kind of got a raw deal because his movies are pretty dry. They almost seem like a course correction from the wackiness of, of Roger Moore. Yeah, and they are. It, it leaned too far, in my opinion, in the dry old school direction. I think yeah. he really wanted to get back to Fleming, which is an interesting thing. And I think he's just a victim of bad timing, because if it was him in the Daniel Craig era, he probably would have fared pretty well. And it's weird because you can define the Moore films as largely they're the Adam West Batman era versus the <laughs> yeah. Sean Connery films, which are, you know, more the sort of prisoner man from uncle vibe of the 60s. And, you know, they each have pretty clear aesthetics. Tim Dalton, just those two movies are so radically different. You know, you have the first one, which is Honor Majesty's Secret Service-ish. It's very much that kind of a spy film. And the second one is just a Joel Silver movie. Yeah, Michael Kamen soundtrack and yeah. Yeah. Wayne, Wayne Newton. And that's why I'm really curious to see what his third movie would have been because... It would have helped define him. You would have had a better sense of who he was as Bond because I, I still think like we barely know. Like he, by doing two films that different... I'm not entirely sure. And I like elements of both. I think there's things in both that are okay. I like the idea that Felix Leiter was back and they tried to go a little bit continuity heavy. And then like, like I said, it's just so trashy. Like it (laughs) feels like Cobra is being filmed like right off camera. Yeah, but in really bright light. James Bond Death Wish movie kind of. But uh, speaking of Ian Fleming, it's worth mentioning to our listeners that Matt, why don't you tell everybody where you played Ian Fleming? Uh, Was it, are you talking about the um, dead authors? Were you an episode of Drunk History? Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. So I checked uh, yeah. that credit and I was like, he must have been really, some, a, a friend of his must have been writing or you were writing on the show and somebody said, well, for Ian Fleming, you have to get Matt Gorley. <laughs> uh, I had done a few a few of the drunk narrations on that show, I think three, and I know the two guys that made it, and I think, yeah, they realized once they had to have a quick Ian Fleming that they would throw me that bone, and I'm forever grateful. <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. I truly think that might be the best gig on television is telling the drunken histories. Those, those are amazing. It's really fun to do, from what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> And ironically, I did the Alamo, so that I don't remember much. But So, Matt, let's do it. Let's hit your list, man. I oh. would love to hear some of the things from the 80s. We ask our guests who come on to talk about movies from the decade that aren't the ones that are discussed, since that is so much a purpose for this show, is shining the light on films that have been forgotten from the era that aren't part of the major conversation and that we dearly genuinely want people to track down. So you said you had a few, let's just jump in wherever you want to start. Okay. I God, I'm so torn. I have this, this, like I should send you a picture of this page. It looks like a serial killer wrote down a bunch of movies. Cause I don't hold on. <laughs> so do you want them in like a, uh, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6 nah, kind of thing? Nah, just, just uh, everybody comes in with more than we can use. Okay. And it's really about like just you go through and just the ones that you make, make sure you want to spotlight. So some of these are movies that might be better known. So I'm going to kind of cast those aside as honorable mentions. Things like Mr. Mom, Arthur, Crawl. I'm sure they're like, especially Crawl, you know, is like such a movie that is well known today. And Oh, but, as if I could love you more. Oh, God, I love it. If, spirited conversations here on the show, definitely. Oh, really? Drew is less of a fan than I am, but I think even he would uh, admit that it does have some 
fun technical aspects and the score is pretty cool. I'm fascinated by it. There's no doubt. I uh I love okay, so here's a good crawl story, Matt. I love this one. Coca-Cola was involved. No, I did not. Okay, because Columbia and Coca-Cola were co-parented at that point. Coca-Cola put in a million dollars of money to help develop the beast so that they could put it on all their advertising and marketing tie-ins. And they wanted this monster to be the supreme movie monster of the year. So they put a million dollars in just to develop that creature that then in the end they couldn't shoot through anything besides distorted filters because nobody liked the way it looked. Oh, my God. So amazing. And look, we heard afterwards, because I I maybe wasn't the kindest to Krull, but the fandom of Krull out there is passionate. Yeah. Come on, I like the movie, and even I can tell you it's it's sloppy mess. Come on. (laughs) It's beloved. It is beloved. It's got quicksand, and that's about all I need. So you're a big quicksand fan. Um, I am. And so like Beastmaster is also on my honorable mention list. Nice. Okay, so my other honorable mentions are, well, Mr. Mom, Gung Ho, Taps, Stir Crazy. I'm excited by the Taps mention. I think that movie is one of the best acted ensemble movies of the early 80s. That young cast, every one of them is so freaking hungry in that movie. I also have Halloween 6 because it's so crazy on there. Um, Short Time with Dabney Coleman. Nice. Nice. Dabney Uh, Coleman is the patron saint of our show. I have such a fondness for him because he looks, my dad looked just like that when I was a kid too. Oh, awesome. So I'm sure you can imagine what's on my list specifically. Uh, Wait, so real quick, sidebar. I'm going to ask you on a five-star scale, rate Dabney Coleman in Tootsie. Oh, five star five stars yeah. rate dabney coleman five in nine, six on golden pond uh, ten yes yeah we adore dabney coleman so, so do i but, yeah matt how about give me just a couple of thoughts on dabney coleman in cloak and dagger well let's save that okay okay and then my other ones were Dragon Slayer, Going Ape, and Super Fuzz. Dude, Dragon Slayer. How is Going Ape an underrated movie or a, an honorable mention? Tell me. I want to hear it. You mean like it should be higher or it should not be on there oh, at all? No, I'm, I'm... <laughs> Much higher. Look, look, you know, we've had guests on this show for several years now, and more than one, uh, more, more than one guest has mentioned an obscure eight, 1987 comedy called Hunk. Oh, wait. Yeah, what is that? I remember that. It's a guy sells his soul to James Coco as the devil in order to become a good-looking surfer dude. Oh, yeah, I remember Hunk. Okay, I do this. (laughs) I do. Yeah, I remember that poster. Oh, my God. Um, It was one of those... One of those shows that or movies that was on a lot, and I love the way it starts, where he's sitting at his desk with a pocket knife, cutting slivers of of his desk off and sending them off as pieces from either Babe Ruth's bat or Christ's cross. Like he's put an ad in a comic (laughs) book and people are buying that from him. And that to me just it's the like quickest, most efficient character establishment in cinema history. What um, I was fascinated by about going ape, because I saw it theatrically, and it was because I was a raving taxi fanatic at that point. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the idea that there was a movie with Tony Danza and Danny DeVito, I was like, okay, cool. Definitely not taxi. It's it's a very different kind of humor than taxi. Oh, but also, like, orangutans, I don't, I don't care how old I get, they never <laughs> cease to fill me with joy. Also, just because... 
they will make a human expression like a big toothy smile and we read that as an ape smiling at us but all they are thinking is if i move these muscles i get food and they have no joy or anything and just that disconnect just oh makes me so happy <laughs> i have four honorable mentions that are shitty movies that i love i know Go. you Do it. might quibble with going ape but these are like you know notoriously bad genre films but space raiders the 3D one. Um, it wasn't. It was not 3D. It was. Oh wait. Why do I always think it was? You're thinking of either Space Hunter. Yes, Space Hunter. The one with Peter Strauss and Molly Ringwald. Right. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Yes. Oh. Okay. And I saw that in a the theater with my dad, and I just remember that fondly. And- Never Too Young to Die, which is like a Bond ripoff with John Stamos. In fact. George Lazenby plays his father in it, and Gene, Gene Simmons, Simmons is like uh, just bonkers crazy. Now, hold on, because there's somebody involved with that who made another piece of nonsense that we... Oh, um, yes, Pete, Stephen Paul, is that who it is? I'm trying to think. Oh, don't look up, do not click on Stephen Paul's name on IMDb. Oh, Trust me, Drew. Oh. Oh, he did it. Oh, my God, yes. Matt, the worst movie we've seen yet for the podcast. We are February of 85. And I would argue that by far the worst movie we've seen is a movie called Slapstick of Another Kind. Oh, I know the Madeline Kahn one and Jesus Jerry Lewis. Christ, yes, man. I've never seen it, but I didn't realize that was Stephen Paul. It, yeah, he directed that. And uh, oh and God. it was and my theory is that the only reason that movie exists is he was the manager for those people and forced them to do it at gunpoint. It's worse than you think a movie can be. And Kurt Vonnegut Jr. wrote. Kurt Vonnegut wrote the book, and the book is the book is unadaptable. It's one of his that was meant as pure stream of consciousness literary farce, like just it's nonsense for the sake of it, and it's him working through grief in a very particular way. And man, that film is crazy, crazy. It's it it opens with Pat Morita as the president of China flying around in a fortune cookie. So it can only get better from there. Oh, my God. That's funny because Jeremy, my buddy from Super Ego, and I would sit and watch shitty movies quite a bit in our lives. And we hit on a few Stephen Paul movies and we would just devolve into this point where we're watching these films and he would do film commentary as if he was Stephen Paul going like, (laughs) here's why here's why I wanted this and here's why I wanted this. And it was all, it's like, there was a heavy eroticism in Please let me bring too. Slapstick of Another Kind to you, because that he, he needs to see this before he goes there. Yeah, Drew, Drew has a copy of it, and we would love to hear your and his reaction to this movie. It is beyond unwatchable. Oh, it's special, God. man. Okay, good enough. All right, and then Crystal Heart. Have you ever heard of that? No. That's with Tawny Katane, and she falls in love with a boy in a bubble and breaks him out, and it's bonkers. <laughs> It's really something. I keep trying to get them to do that on how did this get made because it's tailor made for it. And then my last honorable mention is You're the Hunter from the Future. Like you guys, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the first part of that movie countless times and I fall asleep every time and I've maybe seen the ending once. <laughs> but that's one I remember as a kid and it was like an eight episode miniseries in Italy that they turned into I know. a two hour movie. I, know. I can't imagine what eight episodes of that would look like because oh, I'd sure like to know. <laughs> Uh, to our listeners who uh, somehow at this point are not familiar with your the hunter from the future, look up the poster 
for you're yeah. the hunter from the future and look and read the text and just stare at it. Bask in the absurdity of that poster. The quality of the poster belies the quality of the film. Well, that was that was that era, man. There are so many movies where the posters we just OK, I've watched recently, but we haven't recorded the episode yet for a movie called Defcon 4. Oh, and that is one of those posters. That you know it, you've seen it a thousand times. I bet you even really like the poster. Please don't ever make the mistake of thinking it represents the film because that poster is incredible. Yeah, and when I tweeted that poster a few months ago, somebody responded to me with it was like um it was like the cover of a well-known French anthology book, sci-fi book from the 70s. And I don't know if it was licensed or ripped off, but it was almost identical. Yeah. Wow. But it's an amazing painting. Oh my God, you guys, I'm just, I just fallen down a Stephen Paul wormhole and I see that <laughs> he's a producer on Rambo 5 Last Blood. <laughs> what? Wait, am I wrong or isn't he also a producer on the Baby Geniuses series? Yes, he is. And also the Expendables 4. But wait, Rambo Last, F- Rambo 5 is in post production? Yeah. Yeah. They, they're done. I didn't even know they shot it. Yeah. And I've got you go off social media for one holiday season and this is what happens. And look at what you've missed. You've missed (laughs) key, key information. Oh, my God. Yes. All All right. right. Now I'm going to (laughs) get two films that are bigger off my list. Ten and nine. Nine to five and Arthur are my ten and nine. They're films that I just adore. And they're like comfort films for me where I can put them on anytime and they make me so happy the way they're shot, everything. The music. Who is the funniest of the three in, in nine to five? Oh, it's really tough between <laughs> Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, but um I think I'll go Lily Tomlin. Jane Fonda is funny, but she's like you gotta it's just quieter funny. Lily yeah. and Dolly are both a little more boisterous funny. Yeah, I appreciate her more recently, but really it's Dabney Coleman. Uh, okay, so number eight, Spies Like Us. Nice. nice. Um, not much to say about that. It's just a sentimental favorite. We'll get a little bit more obscure as we go on here. Seven, The Day After. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Tough, man. Well, I just was morbidly fascinated with, like I said, like horror movies because they really scared me. And growing up in the Cold War, it really scared the crap out of me that a nuclear war could happen at any time in the night might not be any warning so i thought oh i'll watch this to understand it and it did nothing but make me more scared because they just show the uh (laughs) the effects of it and i i saw it as an adult and you know it doesn't hold up so well but it it really affected me so it's kind of like more the reason i put it here i don't think if you didn't grow up in nuclear sort of under that nuclear shadow. I don't think you understand how pervasive the fear was or how they hammered it into us. And so yeah, like right. those movies, they really were more than just the film. It was also the cultural conversation around it. And the, there was almost the attitude, like you had to watch it just in case. And it's not terribly accurate and it really doesn't show you anything that's going to help you if it happens. It just shows you it's awful. So I I don't know what good it did me, but there was the feeling like, well, I guess you have to watch it so that you know what could happen. Why? Why why, why do you want me to know that? I'm I'm 13. I really don't need to know this. Thank you. I know. I'll blow your mind with another one, Matt. Do you remember off the top of your head a, a really great TV movie called Special Bulletin? No. Oh, so you you would remember it if you saw it, where the nuclear terrorists take over a boat in the harbor and it's all done as a live broadcast that <gasps> then gets oh interrupted God. by an explosion. Early Ed Zwick. You'll like it. 
Oh, wow. And they played it as it's kind of like Ghostwatch from the UK where they played it as it was really happening on NBC. Oh, my God. Oh, I got to see that. So that one, what'd you say that one was called? That's called Special Bulletin. Jesus, the nerve. Oh, I forgot Delta Force and Red Dawn were on my uh, honorable mention. Oh, you too. know what? I can't remember. All right. there. You know how, of course, there are lots of movies we saw back in the 80s. And for all intents and purposes, we haven't seen them. You, They've been erased from our brain pan, like entirely. Delta Force, I know for a fact I watched off HBO. I couldn't remember one frame of it, and I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Oh, interesting. It is a strange mix of a like movie trying to be say something about politics and culture and then Chuck Norris. <laughs> uh, okay, so where am I? Let's see. That was number seven. Number six is Southern Comfort. Nice. A lot of people will automatically point to Streets of Fire as their favorite like underloved uh, uh, Walter Hill, I think Drew and I both agree that Southern Comfort might be his best under-loved movie. Yeah, and I have to go back and see that again because I watched that a lot as a kid and I would always catch it on TV. Same thing with Swamp Thing and I would catch it like halfway through so I never saw the beginning forever and I never knew why they were lost or what the hell happened. Southern Comfort really works. The way they set it up and the way things go off the rails really works. And yeah. It it reminds me of First Blood in the sense that there's a sad inevitability to things once they get shitty. And it also had good squibs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and speaking of one of the actors in that, my number five is Remo Williams. Ah, terrific. The great Fred Ward. I just I just watched uh, Secret Admirer, which I remembered liking when I was younger. Don't care much for it now. But Fred Ward shows up in the middle of this sex farce and takes it over with both hands. And he is great. He is, dare I say, Dabney Coleman-esque? Yeah, he's like Dabney Coleman of action films. And he showed up in True Detective Season 2 and they like never used him. And I just was like, give this guy the lead. He's incredible. He looks amazing still. He's got this full head of white, thick hair. He's incredible. Ferociously underrated guy in general. We we didn't discuss this. I'm gonna guess, I'm going to make a prediction. Both of you love Miami Blues. Big fan. I haven't seen it since it came out, Ooh. so... I remember at the time not getting it, but I bet I'd love it now. Uh, but okay, well, what is it you love about Remo? And were you upset that the adventure did not continue? Well, it was like a, a nice mix of James Bond and kind of more of an American, you know, a little more gruff, reluctant. And martial arts. Yeah. And Joel Grey being, you know, yellow washed. It was all questionable is that this year we'll get to that soon right Drew? uh yeah it's coming soon and uh, my dad had the two different stacks of stuff that i grew up on the movies and the books and the book series he read all the flemings he read all the destroyers he read all the and he read junk he read all the pulp junk so yeah that doc savage stuff was there but the remo williams books were there and they're really trashy and junky and crazy and if anything my only wish about the movie is that they had been even pulpier and crazier because I mm. like the I like the Fred Ward casting and I like the fact that it's truck driver James Bond. He's like a blue collar thick neck. He is not in any way suave or debonair or cool or and that's kind of what makes him great. And I like Fred Ward for that guy. I just I wish they had gone further into the sort of pulp flavor of the thing because the best moments of that movie are when it's at its silliest and it's most winking at you. And it's got that Tom Mankiewicz sort of big, crazy, silly feel that I like so much. Yeah. Another like he's responsible for some of the f most fun Roger Moore Bond movies. Yeah. too. 
Um, uh, have you seen Remo recently, or are you going off nostalgia? No, right? I'm going off nostalgia for quite a quite a few of these. But we'll good, see. good. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, all right, number four is Hero at Large. Oh, that's terrific. If we ever meet at a podcast festival and I just hug you without speaking, <laughs> Hero at Large is why. Oh, that's nice. I, I grew up madly in love. My sister, my mother, my, and I madly in love with John Ritter. Same here. Same here. Yeah. My I sister, like, my mother, and I, we, and my dad, well, uh, we would do it at separate parents, but we would watch Three's Company and we all just bonded over it. Yeah, and my cousin and I saw Hero at Large at a matinee in 1980, and my mother used to say that we would jump around the house with towels on our back saying, mind if I drop in? Me too. I know. And in fact, I dressed up as Superman so much, but when that movie came out, I was like, Mom, can you make me this cape? And I wanted those glasses. And and I'll, I'll, I'm happy to opine, Matt, that while a bunch of it is dated, and it because ha- it stars Burt Convy, for Christ's sake. Uh, right. I mean, 1980, a lot of it is dated, but... Ann Archer and John Ritter, charming, and it does have some warm chuckles. It's not, it doesn't make you cringe if you were to revisit Hero at Large. I've told Scott this, Matt. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and fess up. I had the novelization. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. There we go. And I'm assuming that's not just a novelization of the film. This was a work from probably the 40s, a real classic. <laughs> yes, this, this is, uh, it's one of Hemingway's uh, unpublished books. They finally put it out. <laughs> New American Library edition. It's great. That and Popeye were books that I carried everywhere with me that same year. So oh God, I loved Popeye too. That would be on my list. I knew I was forgetting. Oh, some. we're big watched, Popeye fans here, man. I am too. I watched that recently. I know you're a busy guy, but you got to start at the beginning of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. No when you have some time, man, you. I think you'd really, even when you disagree, I think we love Popeye and Flash Gordon were probably our two biggest buzzies of 1980. We couldn't stop talking about either of those. Oh, yeah. I love Flash Gordon, too. I watched Popeye and Hero at Large in the last few years, and I really still enjoyed both of them. And they're very sweet in a way that I think distinguishes early 80s stuff where the Hangover from the 70s hasn't really kicked in yet, and the weird Reagan 80s haven't started yet, and it's just kind of a sweet era. There's a lot of really sweet films. They're Jimmy Carter movies. Yeah, (laughs) I I would agree with you. All right, number three, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. (laughs) Oh! That 80s, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's 1980. It's 81, actually. Uh, All right, all right, all right. I'm going to tell you now, one of us kind of likes this movie. One of us outright hates it. But I would, before I tell you which, I would love to hear your uh, thoughts on Joel Schumacher's directorial debut. Um, boy, I didn't even realize it was a Joel Schumacher film. I just love Lily Tomlin. And this is another one of those films that I think I just, it's cemented in with a memory of maybe seeing it with my mom and my sister and just knowing that, like, if you're going to watch a movie already, it doesn't even matter what the movie is. Just going to a movie in 1980 was enough. And that's going to sound like so quaint and old fashioned in today's world, but it really was. It was pre VHS and all that stuff. So I don't even know if I saw it in the theaters or maybe we had it on select TV, but it was something in my memory is that this was a family time to watch this movie. And Certain things just stuck with us, like the jingle for Galaxy Glue. In fact, Galaxy Glue, glue. Come on. <laughs> Galaxy <laughs> Glue. What would we do without Galaxy Glue? Yeah. I know. Yeah. And Charles Grodin. Yeah. Uh, is this Sterling or B minus Charles Grodin? Well, here's what I would say: is that every Charles Grodin performance 
is an A or a C or an F, depending on how you feel about him, because he's the same in everything, and I <laughs> yeah. love it. For me, it's everything he does is an A. Same with Dabney Coleman. You know, like they don't really wander out of their type much, but I don't require that of them. I think the movie is dated, but kind of funny. I don't really care much for the monkey stuff at the end. I'm sure you like it a little bit more. I love it. Drew thinks the movie is a fucking eyesore. He hates it. <laughs> and But here's the thing. I have the same experience you do with it. I grew up with it. My family opened one of the first video stores in where we oh lived in God. Chattanooga. So this was 81-ish. They would send boxes of the movies to the house to get processed. So a lot of what I saw, I saw at home. And the things that we liked, I would dupe and I would watch over and over. And Incredible Shrinking Woman must have played a hundred times in my house, it feels like. Oh, well, that's the closet with the cigars. I think you you probably had too much of it. It's one of those things where it was because it was on tapes with other stuff. Just I saw bits and pieces of it so many times as a kid that I felt like I love this movie. I know this movie. And then I watched it for the show. And my one viewing for the show was going to be my last viewing of that film. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was one of the hardcore snaps of nostalgia versus what I thought seeing it fresh. What happened to Mark Blankfield, Matt? What happened? I don't know. That guy's great. He's funny as hell in this. He has some really funny moments in Jekyll and Hyde together again. But it just seemed like what did happen to him? Well, I can tell you this. He, for a little while, was the guy who you went to when the original dude wouldn't do the sequel and you wanted to make the sequel for TV because he's the star of both Splash 2 and The Jerk 2. So I think he got at some point relegated to that and then just it was a shame. And a lot of the Fridays guys never made the same jump. Michael Richards and Larry David were the two. How about, though, could we just interject real quick how funny Dabney Coleman is in Young Doctors in Love? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. In fact, we can stay on him because my number two is Cloak and Dagger. Oh, right. Very cool choice. Give us the then and now. Give us the like uh, Little Matt ver- review of, of Cloak and Dagger and Big Boy Matt version. Well, Little Matt review of C- Cloak and Dagger was, oh my God, they took my life and put it on screen except without the murder. Like I was just skulking around malls with toy guns in my backpacks and like that's just what I was doing. And I had a little... Uh, Friend, my best friend was a girl as well. She looked just like her. Her name was Kelly Grenager, and I used to make her play all these dumb things. Yo, how she, funny is that kid in the movie? She's great. Oh, Kimmy, she's amazing, yeah. And and then add the Dabney Coleman thing, which he did really remind me of my dad. My dad was probably a little warmer, but he had a real stern side too. And so it really, I don't know, it hit me. Like that was the adventure I wanted to go on. And then it made me as an adult really think like, both Short Time and Cloak and Dagger, Dabney Coleman, if we're being honest, was probably 10th on a list of people who turned down those movies. There's no way he was the first person they went to for Cloak and Dagger, right? Like, they must have gone to someone bigger. I, they probably went to the action guys and the guys that you think of as, like, the major stars at the moment. And But that's why I love it, because he's a real dad, and it felt real and so that's why that one really sticks with i me. think it's because like guys like us we really appreciate the utility players whether that's a journeyman director or an established character actor and on the few moments 
whatever reason got him a lead in cloak and dagger in short time who cares that's yeah. our that's our benefit right so it's exactly. it's like watching a a really good utility player get to start for a week and he hits two triples yeah it's like seeing yeah. bill paxton star in something it's like it's just when a guy that you love takes center stage and it's one of the reasons simple plan is extra delightful for me because oh i thought you were gonna say frailty yeah but whatever the case like it's when when somebody that you know never is the center gets to be the center it, it's really special sometimes yeah, I wish they'd do it more. All right, what else you got? Here's my number one. Number one. Oh, here it is. And this is, uh, I, you know, it's a movie that I cannot even tell is good because it's been with me as long as I can remember, and I go to it frequently, and it's Force 10 from Navarone. Wow, okay. It's such a cross of a, it's got everything I need. World War II, Harrison Ford, and a bunch of Bond elements. It's directed by Guy Hamilton. It's got... Edward Fox, who I just love. It's got um, Robert Shaw, Carl Weathers, Richard Keel, Barbara Bach. I just love this you, movie. You got your James Bond in my World War II action film. And put in a little Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I mean, it's yep. just... Oh. It's a fun It's a fun movie. I would not have guessed that. You could have given me a thousand guesses, and I don't think I would have gotten that. But that's a good pick. I, I'm going to say, terrific movie. A lot of fun, and I agree with you. I Unfortunately... I'm going to have to disqualify it as a 1978 release. <gasps> what? Yes. Blam! Oh my God. I'd never even thought to look because I just assumed. Because it did come back out theatrically to ah. cash in on the Harrison Ford resurgence, on the idea that he'd become a bigger star. They absolutely ah. put it back out in theaters. So my guess is you saw it theatrically. Then you then it counts on a technicality. So I that's that's an experience you had in the eighties. I'm cool with it. I'm going to leave it uh, qualified as okay. number one. So there we go. <laughs> wow, my number one with an asterisk. This is a great list. I'm very happy with the list, Matt. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Oh, it was my pleasure, and I feel like I could sit and talk with you guys about this anytime, so I'd be happy to come back down the road. Well, we'll, we'll definitely take advantage of that, and um, I really do. I think that. As podcasting goes, taking this form seriously and trying to do new things with it and trying to expand what it is, uh, I think you've done a lot of good for this uh, medium, and uh, it's a real privilege to have you here, man. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. It really does, especially coming from you guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. 